0: If you're new here, uh, before we go to the text, we like to do two things. One of which is we like to say a prayer, a Jewish prayer, called the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a way of saying, God, before we come to the text, teach us. We want to recommit our lives to you and to say that you are our number one priority. So we do that. The second thing we do is we stand. It's a way to distinguish uh, my words from God's words. So we stand for his, and you certainly can sit down for mine. So let us read uh, Romans uh, 2. Uh, we'll start in verse 1, but first, the Shema. Say it after me. Hear, O Israel. Hero is real. The, Lord is the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. The Lord. Love the Lord your God. Lord. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your might. Amen. 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 Romans 2, verse 1. And this comes in response to Paul after he's laid it on pretty thick to the pagan Gentiles of the world. He says this. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on our hearts. Their conscience also bears witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Kind of a heavy one for us, huh? Well, let me start off by telling you a story. You see, every neighborhood has a story. Now, we've lived on our street for, um, we're in our third year now, and we love our street. And over that time, we have learned the stories of our street. There's the guy who is, who's home because of a work disability. So he snow blows everyone's uh, sidewalks, even if there's just a few inches of snow. And there's the house that doesn't take down its Christmas lights, I've said this before, there's the house that doesn't take down their Christmas lights literally until April. So we're taking bets this year to see when, they're not down yet. There's the lady who walks her chihuahua every morning. You can set your clock to it as we're having our coffee out out the front windows. And of course there's the house with the hot tub, and we try to make friends with those people. Those are the people. (laughs) They're right next door on our one side, and we we try to make good with them whenever we can. See, we've begun to learn the stories of our neighborhood, but every story has a backstory. Right? Every story has those secrets, has those things that you can't really see unless you're in it. There's the story behind the story. There's those things, both positive and negative, that you learn that make sense of the whole. And our our street, just like every street, has its backstories. And one of these backstories are those neighbors. And we all have those neighbors, don't we? They're the neighbors who don't mow their lawn. And they're the neighbors who leave their trash out too long and it blows into your yard. It's the neighbors who fight in their front yard for everyone to hear. And for us, our family, those neighbors live on the other side of the hot tub family. We have the hot tub family that we like to be friends with, and then we have those neighbors on the other side. And I was sitting on that couch that we sit when we watch the chihuahua lady walk by one morning. And I was looking out the window when those, one of those neighbors walked outside to smoke a cigarette. It was midday at that point. Actually, it wasn't in the morning. It was midday at that point, and he was still in his pajamas. Now, the cigarette smoke invades our home often. And the unintended cries of his infant child have us question if we should intervene. And the sound of the police officers responding to domestic disturbances have us peeking through our blinds. We all have those neighbors. And as I watched him, I thought to myself, what a deadbeat. What's wrong with this guy? Why does not get his life together? Get a job, you hippie. <laughs> get your life together, man. You're living at home with your mother. You're clearly 30 plus. What are you doing in your pajamas smoking a cigarette in the middle of the day? Why don't you step up and take some action? Why don't you step up and take some responsibility? You have a child now that I see you pass back and forth to mother as she picks it up on her turns for visitation. What's wrong with you? See, that story connects to our story today, because our story today, and really the whole story of the book of Romans, is about two groups of people, and one in particular who doesn't really like the other. And like every story, there's a backstory. So let's begin there, if we can. Paul mentions in the letter, right at the beginning, we looked at it a few weeks ago, that he longs to see the Roman churches for many years. He has wanted to see and come and visit Rome for many, many years, which tells us that these are not brand new churches. I've always thought, uh, and I don't know why, that he's writing to church plants. He's writing to these brand new churches that need encouragement, but that's not the case with the Roman churches. Paul didn't start these churches. These churches came up organically as Jewish converts began to hear the gospel and respond and build churches in Rome. So Paul has longed to go there to visit for many years. These churches have history. These churches have been around for a while. And it was made up of these two different types of people. Christians both from a Jewish and a Gentile background. Now, the Jews were God's chosen people historically in the Old Testament. Jews had always been the religious insiders, the ones who were given God's law, his instruction book, the ones who had the family pedigree, the ones who had it all figured out. And then there were the Gentiles, who was anyone who wasn't a Jew, the historical outsiders, the pagans, the enemies... And while many had converted to Christianity, let's be honest, in the end, they're still Gentiles. And as these Roman churches grew and grew, civil disorder actually began to break out from those who opposed Christianity as a whole. And so in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius, who was the emperor at the time in Rome, living in Rome, ordered that all Jews leave town. Literally, he kicked the Jews out of Rome entirely in 54 AD. He said, enough with the civilists, get rid of them. And so the Jews dispersed and were banished from Rome, leaving the Gentile Christians, the Gentiles, even though they hadn't started those churches, all by themselves to pick up the pieces. And so they began to lead apart from the other group. And their churches flourished. They actually did very, very well. In fact, in Acts 18, Paul actually meets some of these Roman Jewish leaders during their banishment. We find it in Acts 18, it says this, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, and a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So Paul is on his way, he's, he's making his rounds, and he actually runs into two of these leaders, these Jewish leaders, during their expulsion. And they get to talking, and they, get, uh, uh, they meet each other, and they become friends, to the point in which now at the end of Romans, Paul is actually gonna address these two by name, and greet them, and say, how's it going? I can't wait to see you again which tells us that now these leaders are back. Because five years after the order, the emperor dies. And when the emperor dies, that edict gets, gets terminated. And all the Jews are allowed to come back. So they've been gone for five years, and they show back up, and their churches are actually doing pretty well. They're doing better than pretty well. They're flourishing. How do you think those Jewish leaders would have felt. Let me give you an example. It'd be like this. It would be like um, when, when Pastor Milo was planting renewal, right? He and his team poured their lives into launching this church into existence. But then let's say evil Governor Como, right? This evil man who will, who will actually, we'll talk about later, bans all ruggedly handsome bearded men from New York. (laughs) Right? Their devilish good looks are causing civil disorder. And they have to go. So Milo has to move out of state, and Dan Davis and his team of clean-shaven and or average-looking bearded men, they take the lead. And in the five years that they're in charge, renewal explodes and flourishes. And five years later, Milo is allowed to come back. But when he gets there, he sees a church that's thriving without him. And there are more people he doesn't know than he does. And he's ready to jump right back in. How do you think he and Dan would do? You sense the tension there. You sense why this might not be the best situation. This is the historical backdrop to Romans. This is what happens. How do you think each of them would feel? How would the Jewish Christians have felt? Maybe indignant, critical, prideful, insecure? And what's the natural response when we feel these things? Well, if you're like me... I tend to elevate myself and tear down the other. You say things like this, well, I I could have done that too. Or if I had those conditions, it it would be similar. Or I would have gotten those same results. And if we allow those thoughts to fester, if we allow them to continue to play on in our mind, then it starts to get personal, doesn't it? well, they're not telling the whole story. Or, well, how spiritually mature are they anyway? And, well, I I know they don't do this, or they do do that. Any of that sound familiar? When I was church planning, I didn't have an office, so I spent four years of my life in coffee shops. And I cannot tell you how many conversations I um, eavesdropped on in which one person was complaining about someone to another person. It actually made up a majority of the conversations I overheard in coffee shops. One person complaining about a person or a group of people to another one. And if you scratch just below the surface of these judgments, you would find a treasure trove of indignance and pride and insecurity. You see, this very thing is festering in Rome, and heightened not just by that, but by their cultural and ethnic differences as well, Christian Jews were attempting to reclaim their status. They're the chosen ones, the ones God gave the law to, the ones who were doing it right. They're God's chosen people. It's time to put these Gentile majority in their place. This is the tension. This is the religious insiders and outsiders. This tension between the religious insiders and outsiders is the central backdrop to Rome. In fact, if we, don't, if we miss this, if we miss this idea, and this is your first fill-in, if we miss this idea, we're going to miss a lot of Romans, and we're going to generalize a lot of Romans. But this specific thing, the tension between the religious insiders and outsiders, is one of the, if not the central backdrops of Romans. And so Paul writes a letter, and in his opening statement, he sets a hook. He sets a hook. Now last week, Milo looked at the last part of chapter 1, where Paul lays it on really thick. If you weren't there, if you missed Snowbird Sunday, uh, ask someone else who was there uh, about it. It uh, It was special, to say the least. But in the midst of the commotion, we actually did preach a sermon. And in the middle of the sermon, we, we, Milo really showed and stressed the idea that, that Paul just lays it on super thick for these uh, pagan Gentiles. Those that the text says who don't have the law, so they rely on natural things in order to guide them, because they don't have the law, which is code for Gentile. And I'm telling you what, Paul lays it on... Real, real thick. He singles out the Gentiles by saying that they're futile and foolish. Their hearts are darkened. They're sexually impure. They're depraved. They're filled with all kinds of wickedness and greed and evil. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They're disobedient to their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Talk about no mercy. Now, if you're a Jew and you're reading this, Aren't you just rubbing your hands and saying, oh yeah, lay it on, Paul. That's right. If you're reading this, it is likely feeding into all of these thoughts and insecurities you have. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all those pagan Gentiles, godlessness and wickedness, and the Jews cheer it on. Remind them of who they are. Paul says God's invisible qualities are clearly seen so that no one has excuse The Jews spur them on. Get them, Paul. Remind them of where they came from. Paul says God gives the envious, the murder, the impure, the deceitful, the gossips, the slanderers, the God-haters, the insolent, the arrogant, the boastful, the disobedient over to their ways. The Jews stand to their feet. Put them in their place. And then we hit chapter 2. And Paul sets his hook. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, because you do it too. We actually see this in other places in the Bible. There are other places of the Bible where this hook is set. There is an exchange with the prophet Nathan has with King David, right after David's affair with Bathsheba and his subsequent killing of her husband Uriah. It says this in, first, in 2 Samuel 12, in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. The man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. The hook is set. Paul goes on in chapter 2 and says, When you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, and his righteous judgment will be revealed. You see in your next film, the insiders judge and are wrong, but God judges and is right. His righteous judgment will prevail. You judge and you're so wrong, but God judges and is right. Right. rights. But the question that's raised is, what did these Jewish Christians actually do? I mean, Paul says that they do the exact same things, but actually that's highly unlikely that these religious folks were actually engaging in these behaviors. So what does Paul actually mean when he says, you do it too? Because again, it's wildly believed and wildly accepted that these Jewish Christians are not actually engaging in the things that Paul lists in chapter one, at least not explicitly. So what does Paul actually mean by this? And I think the text gives us two clues into the matter. The first one is this. Paul stresses the connection between righteous hearts and righteous actions. Paul stresses the connection between righteous hearts and righteous actions, Paul says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And further down, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. You see, you can have all the right theology You can be on the right side of the debate. You can stand for the right things, build the right soapboxes. But if that righteous heart does not translate into righteous action, you hear the law, but you don't obey the law. You hear the law, but you don't obey the law. They need to be connected. Your righteous heart must be connected to righteous action, or you're just spinning your wheels. See, we live in a world, especially in the age of social media, where we mistake our opinions for our actions. It's easy to mix up up our advocacy for our action. An author that I like, Jared Bias, he puts it this way, "'I'm not interested in how well you can script your beliefs in front of a computer, but in how tenaciously you go about grinding out your moral existence.'" Typing out what you stand for is easy, but loving well isn't. I am not down on typing out our opinions. I'm only down on when we think typing in and of itself constitutes an ethical life. May we stop thinking that becoming the kind of person we want to be is as easy as typing me too at those we agree with and stupid people at those we don't. That's a distraction from the real work, and I'm ready to work. One such worker in our congregation is a young woman named Kelsey Glassman. I've gotten to know Kelsey through our leadership cooperative program here at the church. One thing I've learned about Kelsey is that she has a righteous heart for justice, specifically in the area of human trafficking. But what's so cool about Kelsey is that her righteous heart is not the end of the story. Among other things, she volunteers at a local organization called PATH that's dedicated to stopping slavery in our backyard right here in Buffalo. Her righteous heart matches her righteous actions. And this, God says, is what I judge. You see, the Jews were not so much guilty of the sin of commission as the sin of omission. Of looking, standing on a soapbox and saying, that's wrong, that's bad, that's evil. But then ending there. And Paul says, you do the same thing because you do nothing about it. You do nothing about it. You point out all the problems, but are not willing to be part of the solution. Because our righteous heart has to match our righteous action but similarly paul stresses one other thing here in the passage he stresses both the connection from our righteous heart and a righteous action but also our unrighteous hearts from our unrighteous actions those two things are connected too in the last part of our section paul reminds his jewish audience that the gentiles can be righteous without the law because the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Now if the law is written on our hearts, we're responsible for what's on the inside just as much as we're responsible for what's on the outside. Now this is going to be discussed more in the next section, but it shows that we are all culpable for the unrighteous in our heart just as much as the unrighteousness in the actions of our lives. We all have filth inside that we will be called accountable to just as much for our action or anybody else's action on the outside. The two are just as connected as well. See, these Jewish Christians built up this self-righteous judgment and resentment towards the Gentiles. They harbored the same evil on the inside as they condemned on the outside. And so Paul says... You do the same thing, too. Earlier, Paul says that God will judge each person according to what he has done. That was the first point. But now at the end, he says God will judge men's secrets as well. Those internal, quiet, subtle, small sins of the heart. You're just as guilty as well. It's all connected. Which leads us back to that evil Governor Como. This week he signed legislation into law that legalizes abortion up until birth in many cases. The governor actually directed the One World Trade Center to be lit pink Tuesday to celebrate. And for our family, like many others, especially as we expect a baby in May, and we watch our daughter feel the kicks of her baby sister, already. It's disturbing. He and others who are responsible are no less than murderers. But do you know what Jesus says? Well, let's take a look. In Matthew 5, he says this, "'You have heard it said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment.' get him, Jesus. That's right. Go get him. Anyone know the next part? But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. It's a real hard truth to believe that I'm just as guilty too. It's a real hard truth to honestly look at myself in the mirror and say, you know what? I do it too. I do it too. And we make villains, and we make bad guys, and we make those people. And then we look at ourselves in the mirror. And if you're here this morning and you experience experienced this personally, please know that the intent is not to feel condemned, but rather for you not to feel alone. Because I'm guilty too. We're all guilty too. Is the hook set yet? I invite the band up, if you will. It certainly was for me. That hook was set on the day that I was sitting on my couch judging my neighbor. At that time, I was teaching an elective in the book of Jonah, another Jew who would rather have been in the belly of a fish than to go to the Gentiles. And in that moment, the Lord swept in and yelled into my brain, you hypocrite. You preach on the self-righteous Jonah and here you are passing judgment from the comfort of your couch. You do the same thing. You are that man. Like many of you, I'm not a Jew, but I am a Jew. Not by ethnicity, but of the heart. A perceived insider with history and pedigree, which gives me the right to judge my neighbor. And we all have that neighbor, don't we? We all have that coworker. We all have that parent in the pickup line. We all have that family member. We all have that politician. We all have that Gentile. And we get trapped in our judgments. No, I get trapped in my judgments. And I'm enslaved to them. And I know because my chains are heavy. Because it takes a lot of work to do the mental gymnastics of justifying yourself in the eyes of someone else. And it takes a lot of work to level the playing field in your mind every time you're the target of a subtle comment. And it takes a lot of work to tear someone down in a situation that seems unfair. Friends, I'm tired. I'm tired. And I'll tell you the truth, this passage wrecked me this week. I lost a lot of sleep because I am that man, and my guess is most of you are too. And the gospel invites us to remove those chains, to live in freedom. Romans 2 says, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. See, the gospel gets at our pride, our rivalries, our draw to measure up, to prove our worth. The gospel says, Lay down your life so that you may be free. And freedom comes at a cost, because acceptance is the price of freedom. Acceptance of saying, God, I am no better than that neighbor. I am no better than that person. I'm no better than those people. I am just as guilty. I am that man. And when I finally come to that place, I don't need to measure up. I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to tear that person down because I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I'm free. Friends, I want you to be free. Acceptance that we are guilty and Jesus comes and takes that guilt and puts us back together, friends. that is good news. See, the gospel doesn't just get you somewhere when you die, but it sets you free right now. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you have come to set us free. And when we're tempted to say those people, that group, that belief system that they hold. Love us enough, God, to remind us that you are that man, you are that woman, you are that Jew too. And may we continue to trust you with our lives. May we continue to trust you and trust who we are in your presence so that you may set us free. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for rescuing us, for carrying that guilt on the cross. And then raising three days later to say you can be resurrected from this too. Join me not just in my death, but in my resurrection and live a resurrected life in freedom of the gospel. Thank you for setting the hook for us. And reminding us, continue to remind us day and day, God, that we are sinners saved by grace. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. This time we'll take up our offering.